0: Welcome back to Digital Health Unplugged, the podcast in which we take a look at what is making headlines in the world of NHS IT. I'm your host, Andrea Downey, and I'm senior reporter here at Digital Health. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Digital Health Unplugged. We are reshaping the way we do things on the podcast to bring you more one on one interviews in the future. And this episode is the first one we've got for you. We're going to be talking about empowering the patient and the importance of including them in the digital transformation journey, whether that's thinking about how they will use a digital tool, how they will engage with services, or even how technology is designed around them. My guest today hardly needs any introduction. I'm joined by a consultant breast surgeon well-known patient advocate and award-winning co-author of The Complete Guide to Breast Cancer, How to Feel Empowered and Take Control, Liz O'Riordan. Liz, thank you so much for joining us on Digital Health Unplugged. How are you doing? I'm really good today, thanks. And thank you for having me as a guest. You're so welcome. I'm really looking forward to this. I think it's going to be a really great discussion, um, particularly because you've got a really unique perspective on this topic because you've seen the health service firsthand through the eyes of a surgeon, and also through the eyes of a patient, and your experience has really led you to be like really vocal in the space of empowering patients. So, I wanted to kick it off by asking you if you could tell us about your journey and how you became to be an advocate in this space. So, back in July 2015, at the age of 40, I just thought I had another breast
1: cyst, and my mammogram was normal, but an ultrasound showed a cancer. And within two weeks, I was starting chemotherapy for a large cancer in my left breast. And I had nine months of treatment, surgery and radiotherapy as well. And I realized that despite training all my life to become a breast surgeon, I knew nothing about what it was like to be a patient. And there were so many needs and problems that I had as a patient that I never even considered as a doctor And I went back to work for a year just to try and change how I handled patients. And then I had a local recurrence, which meant I had to retire because of the side effects. And I was just so frustrated at the lack of knowledge that doctors have about patients and patients have questions they ask. I thought I need to do something about this. So I started writing a blog to try and share what breast cancer was really like, because a lot of blogs can be quite scary to read. And then Trish Greenhash messaged me on Twitter to say that she was having chemo on the same day. And between us, and we're experts in our field, we bought 20 books written by patients. Because although doctors tell you what will happen to you, they don't tell you how to cope. Mm. And that's why we wrote our book to answer all the questions that patients have and help guide them through.
0: Yeah, it's such an incredible journey you've been on. And like, I can't even imagine how scary it would have been as well. You mentioned. that you weren't quite prepared for the experience as a patient, as a surgeon. And I'm really glad you mentioned that because that did lead me on to one of my next questions, which was whether your experience. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like it obviously didn't prepare you so much for your experience as a patient. So, how do you think your perception of the NHS and the healthcare system changed when your role in the system changed? So, for me, it was the little things like I knew you lost the hair on your head during chemo, I
1: didn't realize you lost all your body hair. Mm-hmm. Um, free bikini and leg wax on the NHS <laughs> I didn't realize how hard it was to decide whether to have a reconstruction mm. or just go flat with a mastectomy and I had the luxury of five months to decide but my patients often only had a couple of weeks and I naively assumed that technology would help me cope because I am an apple gadget freak and as a triathlete I used apps to control my training the cycling running swimming all the data apps run my life and I assumed They'd be there for cancer, and there was nothing. And it was only on the last day of chemo that a friend, a doctor who is in IT tech, um, messaged me to say, "Had I heard about the Macmillan app?" And I'd never heard of it. And I was being treated in a Macmillan centre by Macmillan staff, and they'd never heard of it either. And it would have been a great way of reminding me when to take all the tablets and what the side effects were. And as a consultant surgeon, I had never gone on the breast cancer charity website to actually see. What information was out there for my patients, what they were saying in blogs. I'd never gone to look what was out there. I used to tell patients, don't Google, it's scary. I will tell you what you need to know. And it's rubbish because the first thing I did in the car as a consultant breast surgeon was go to Google. I mean, it's hard not to, isn't it? Um... It is. You don't go to the NHS 111, you don't go to your doctor's website, you go to the internet to really find out what it's like. I think that is changing how patients are coping with their illnesses because the internet has exploded. There is so much information out there. Through Twitter, you can access the latest conferences as people live stream. You can get access to so much information that often your doctors won't know. And it's really hard being a patient who might know more than your doctor.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I can I can completely see that it's, it's really hard not to um, to Google your symptoms. And I'm, you know, I'm not a clinician, but I am assuming that there is a lot of information for clinicians to pass on to patients. And they don't necessarily have the time because, you know, as we've seen, the NHS is at the moment, extremely busy, but usually has quite a lot of patients to get through. So how do you think technology in this sense, if we're using it the right way, will help patients through their journey? I think you've hit the nail on the head there with time.
1: My cancer appointments used to be 10 minutes long. And as a consultant, I'd have to meet a woman for the first time, take a history, examine her, tell her she had cancer, ask her what surgery she wanted, mention chemo radiotherapy. There isn't time to talk about the side effects of treatments, let alone coping with sex, work, exercise. And patients are given a huge bunch of leaflets with everything else they need to know. And I just put them all in the bin and found them online. And I think if we could create a digital signpost for every illness, for every patient, to say to them, the first thing you're going to do when you get home is go on Google. This is a list of safe, sensible websites, books, forums, apps that will start you going. Um, Because patients will tell doctors where they've been. You don't need to do the hard work. Just get in some patients at follow-up clinic and ask them what helped them. Because one of the hardest things is a patient especially during COVID these these people have gone in to see a doctor by themselves and they've found out they've got cancer by themselves and they've had to go home and you remember nothing mm. and then your husband or your granny or your daughter says what did they say what's it like how long have you got to live they, i don't know and patients are having to be doctors to their family and if we could create say a national digital signpost to say right breast cancer this is where you're going to go searching melanoma this is where you're going to go it would it would be so beneficial
0: Hmm. that would be amazing wouldn't it I mean 10 minutes I can't believe 10 minutes it's just so It's so such a small amount of time really when you think about the news you're delivering to patients and how life-changing that can be and then as you said you know with COVID having to go through that on your own I can't imagine being able to take in all of that information that I'd need to take in yes I was going to say patients want information at different
1: times Hmm. I've had women who just got out their phone and said fine when's the operation put it in the diary and others who run out the room screaming and others whose husbands faint and I think if you give them everything at the start they may not know where to find it when they really need it but by Hmm. digitally signposting them you can say most people want to know this at this point and give them a guide Hmm. but there are barriers like you said and I think One of those are literacy and language skills because not everybody speaks English as a first language and it can be hard to interpret what you find online. It's also the lack of health and digital literacy and a lot of patients don't know how to use the internet or how to work their way around websites and forums and actually don't have financial access Mm. to mobile tablets and devices. And I think we're in danger of creating a real... Digital divide of empowered, educated patients who have access to their notes and all the benefits of digital health, and another subset that don't have access. And how can we help give them
0: the same quality of care? Yeah, of course. I'm really glad you mentioned the digital divide. Actually, it's something that we've spoken about um, a number of times on the podcast, um, and we've focused on the fact that a lot of people don't have access to the internet, uh, don't necessarily have a smartphone, and that's one of the key things needed if you're going to be using digital technologies um, especially to engage in your own care Um, and I think that's kind of an assumption isn't it that maybe the NHS and innovators particularly you know from the digital health side of things you know we're advocates of using technology it's very easy to forget that not everyone has access to this not everyone's engaged in using technology and therefore isn't going to be engaged in their own care in that way so how do you think we overcome those barriers and encourage patients to become a little bit more engaged in their own care through using tech. I realize that's a big question. I'm sure everyone wants the answer to it and you might not have it. No, I think, I think firstly, it's making sure that it's safe
1: and they can trust it and their data isn't being used for anything else and no one else can steal it. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, especially with the older generation. Again, I have concerns who's got access to my records, especially with it. You know, the, the recent, um, it was shifted back, wasn't it, of giving all your records over. Mm. I think we need to make sure it's safe and it's protected. And I think maybe if hospital, outpatient departments, cancer centres, GPs had iPads with the links that was easy to go to to get information you could email yourself to read at home so kind of bringing that in and there were there were helpers there were people in outpatient clinics who could help register patients so they can get their electronic record they could show them how to find access to the things it's just as a way of starting and helping them almost like an electronic library mm. where they can go and sit so I guess ideally not every hospital I'm talking about cancer now not every hospital has access to a Maggie center which are wonderful places but I'd love to say. Before you go home, you've just had bad news, go to the center, sit, have a cup of tea. There are people there who get it. They'll help show you what you need and how to start your journey.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what about from the innovator side of things now? So the people that are creating these apps or creating these tools, what do you think they need to be considering before they develop these solutions?
1: I've been involved in working with quite a few apps, and it's really funny, um, A lot of people have an amazing idea, but it's not actually going to help my life as a patient. And I think unless you haven't got patients involved from the very, very beginning, you may make an amazing product, but it's actually useless because patients know what they need. And if you haven't had that illness, you might end up going down the wrong tree. And it's something as simple as language. For example, there was one app that was trying to get patients to score their symptoms during chemotherapy. And one of the questions was, do you have diarrhea? And I asked them, what do you mean by diarrhea? They just said, well, it's diarrhea. But actually, for one person, it could be going every day. For someone else, it could be going 10 times Mm. a day. And it's that that misunderstanding between what they think would be a great idea and what patients need. And I think a lot of patients are also nervous that apps are just out there to make money. And it's, It's really hard finding something that actually works for you. And that's where having patients involved in the development of any new digital health is so important because we know what we need.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, you're going to be the ones using it. So it needs to suit the patients more than it suits the clinicians in some senses. Um, So you've mentioned that you've worked on a few apps in the past. Are you able to tell us a bit more about those? I think...
1: I think you've got the two levels. You've got, I think as a patient, I saw all the money being ploughed into digital health. My husband's a CCIO and you see the massive works that CERN and other companies are doing to make hospitals digital. It's fantastic. But as a patient, you don't see any of that. I still get a letter that comes, often with typos, on the new recycled paper. Um, You know, what's in it for me? And I just, it's like, The bank statements are really accurate and really, really detailed. You have all that information, but often from the hospital, we don't give you your results. And it it comes, I'm going off on something else here, but I think it's ownership of data. Mm. So when I had an MRI scan, you have to wait three weeks to get a result. And the result just tells you it's normal. You don't get that full copy because doctors think you might not understand or you don't need to know. But I'm the one who's had to spend 40 minutes lying naked face down listening to Justin Bieber. (laughs) And I want to be able to have the chance to read the full result. And it's like going to the bank and saying, how much money is in my account? Were you in credit? Yeah, but how much? It doesn't matter. You're in credit. We wouldn't put up with it. But with our body, we're not allowed to know.
0: Yeah that's actually really interesting. I've actually never thought about it like that but yeah like any test I have had I've only had the result and not anything else and it would have been handy to know anything
1: else. During chemo my white count was always low but it was like borderline if it was below like one or two then that meant I was really really ill and you have to ring your GP at two o'clock on a Wednesday and they tell you it's normal but I need to know how normal it is and a lot of people won't care but When you have a chronic illness, you are really invested in your disease. You know everything about it. You want that information. It's like, no, you're not allowed to have it. You're the patient. You will not understand. There's Wikipedia. We're on Google. We probably know more (laughs) than the doctors. No, and I think it's doctors realising that empowered patients is a good thing. Yeah. The more information we have, the better relationship you'll have with us. I think a lot of doctors are scared that we're going to be emailing them all the time with questions and answers. But I think actually most of us won't. Hmm. And often being able to send a quick email may avoid an unnecessary clinic appointment and three hours of driving and waiting and the car parking charges. Yeah. yeah. And I think the cold COVID virtual appointments working from home is going to change how we access healthcare and give the right people the right consultation when they need it.
0: Yeah. And I'm assuming, I mean, I don't have any medical background here, but I am assuming that everyone reacts differently to any medication and any illness and knowing your body and what's normal for you and normal for others is really, really important, isn't it?
1: Yeah, completely. And that's where Google can be really, really scary because so I in the first year of when my cancer came back, I was worried that every single lump was metastatic illness and I was going to be dead in a year. And my brain is telling me, don't be silly, it's just a cough. But you can find a blog of someone who was diagnosed without symptoms and dead in a year. There is always that odd one out Mm -hmm. on Google you can find that makes you think it's going to happen. Like the people not having the vaccine because they know one person who died. And it's it's how you get safe, sensible information into the media to filter down to patients. And it's one of the things Trish and I had in our book, trying to help patients interpret the the cases they read in the, in the tabloids. You know, the vitamin C enema in Mexico cured this one woman of lymphoma, but they don't say she actually had chemo. How can you help the general public understand what they're reading and make a sensible decision based on the facts they're given.
0: Yeah, yeah. And obviously, the stories that make it into the tabloids are often worst case scenario. Um because unfortunately, that is what sells the headlines, isn't it? Yeah, but yeah. they've often had treatment as well. Mm. And
1: often their cure isn't just because of this crazy therapy they had, it's something <laughs> else. And my mum said, if I was ever in that stage where I'd run out of treatment, she would think about paying because she wanted to keep me alive. Yeah. And when you have run out of hope and the doctors say there's nothing else they can do, I do understand why patients do that. But all too often it's the doctors who then have to pick up the pieces when they come back. And it's just share of information and talking that bad illnesses can get worse and people will die. And we need to help you accept and prepare and plan for it. It's yeah. it's communication again.
0: Yeah, of course. And also I guess if you know your own body and you know, what result is normal for you and what result isn't normal for you you're more likely to flag an issue when there is an issue and yeah flag it quicker exactly and I think that's yeah. so important
1: now because a lot of people were scared of going to their GP during the lockdown and I think a lot of people are presenting at a much later stage and we kind of need to re-educate the public from an early age to say what's normal and what isn't you know check your bits I, I hate that people saying check your boobs on the first of the month because it should be in the middle of the period. But actually, we should check our genitalia. We should check our nails, our skin, yeah. our mouth, you know, a full body systems check. So, you know, what's normal
0: and what isn't. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Everyone should be doing that. Um, so I've, I've gone off the digital health track now, haven't I? <laughs> no, I think it's no. No, I think it's also very important to do that, because, again, um you know, p- patients are using technology to Google symptoms. Uh, like at the end of the day, no one's going to not use Google. Um, so it's about making sure that they're finding the right information. So, are there any companies or any programs underway that are doing this and are doing it well? No. No. <laughs> so, that's a call to all of the innovators that are listening. There's a job for you. <laughs> Is there even anywhere that um, patients or cancer patients in particular can go to find like a list of approved apps or anything? I don't think there
1: is a designated list of apps or websites for patients and I really think there needs to be and rather than every say breast cancer unit in every hospital doing their own one could you use social media to get a group of active digital patients to create that list that they've used themselves and then put it on the NHS website saying this is where you go to find it because they're all the same. I think often hospitals like to put their own twist on the same kind of information. And maybe we should teach patients how to Google, show them how to use it and how to work it and how to access them. People are going to do it.
0: Yeah, yeah, they definitely are. And it's about knowing which sites are trustworthy. Like personally, I've worked as a healthcare journalist for a number of years. So I know that when I'm googling my symptoms, I always go to the NHS website because I know I can trust it. But there are so many websites out there that will tell you what your symptoms mean. And they are wild, like wildly vary. Yeah, they're telling me is wrong with me. And it's really hard not to panic.
1: I think a, a great starting place would be to go to that cancer charities website. If you have a symptom in your lung or a symptom in your leg, is there a relevant cancer charity that will tell you accurately what the symptoms are, but then you worry it might be cancer. It is really, really hard and there is no way of controlling what comes up. And I think that's why we do need mm. to educate patients. Like in GP surgeries, if you are worried, here is a list of safe websites to go to get simple answers. Um, But it's a lot of work to do that. But I I think we need it to try and help guide patients and make them more empowered so they're using all this technology appropriately.
0: Yeah, of course. And when it comes to putting technology or digital tools in patients' hands, uh, if if you could pick like one thing that really needs to happen immediately, what would it be? (laughs) Oh, I think... You've got two different types of patients. You've got
1: patients that don't really have anything wrong with them, that are generally well, but may go to A&E every once in a while. Or you've got patients with illnesses that they keep going back to have appointments. And I think for those patients, having an app where you have access to all your records or your data or your appointments or your results. There are patient portals here or there, but it's often a website. But I think an app where you can get access to all your data that you know what's going on, be really, really useful so you can flick back and know what's happened. I think that is really good. From a speaking as a cancer point of view, I think a symptom control app, and there are quite a few coming up. Um, I'm an ambassador for one or two, but where you can monitor your symptoms, but not just your symptoms, but your exercise, your nutrition, your mental state, how you're feeling. So you can look back and kind of recognize patterns and just realize, oh, I'm much better than I was. Because I think, There's also recovering from illness and we need to help patients get their quality of life back. And that includes getting their sex life back, making sure they're exercising, they are living. And how can we use technology to help them live once the doctors say goodbye, see you in six months? And there's a huge, I think, gap in the system there.
0: Yeah. I can imagine it's also quite hard when the doctor says goodbye, see you in six months, if you don't have any support. I can't imagine that's an easy journey. So in breast cancer, it was goodbye, see you in four years. That's a long time. Um,
1: Because um, we used to see patients every six months, but patients don't recur on the day of their six-month visit. Um, And actually, it was a waste of everybody's time. So theoretically, everyone knows what symptoms to look out for and how to come back. But you're facing four years thinking, that's it. I'm policing myself. Mm -hmm. And my husband will go crazy if I imagine every cough is a recurrence. And what do I do? And who do I talk to? Because you don't meet other patients. And that's where patients go on forums and either get good or bad advice to help them cope. And I think that's where maybe digital technology can help. But also to get the doctors and nurses looking after this patient body to understand what it's like to live with the illness so they can then give them more advice at the beginning.
0: Yeah. And I guess that kind of leads on to more bespoke advice. So how your lifestyle would fit into around your treatment and how you would like to recover compared to others. You can kind of personalise it in that sense, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah, you can. And I think for me, the biggest thing is exercise. I'm going to it should be the fourth treatment. It can reduce the risk of recurrence. It can reduce the risk of symptoms, complications, but we don't talk about it and using Fitbits, watches at step trackers, technology, apps and videos to help patients learn how to exercise aerobically and weight train at home just to improve their health and get their family on board could have a huge impact. And I think it's embracing holistically what is
0: health. It's not just being seen in a GP or in a hospital. Yeah, it's a whole picture. And that technology is already available. That's not a yeah. a new thing that we need to design. No, and you could say to
1: someone who's overweight and uses a gallbladder operation, fine, we need to do this. But that if you can lose weight, it will be a safe operation. Here is your Fitbit. We want you to do so many thousand steps a day. You have to put in your side of the bargain if we're going to operate and make patients start taking ownership of their health and trying to get them a bit fitter. No, people may not like the idea, but it's just a way of they've got to give something back. Does yeah. that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, I think that makes perfect sense. And I think, uh, you know, I think it is hard for patients to be engaged in their own care when it, like, it's it's daunting. Like, you know, there's yeah. so much health and fitness advice out there anyway. It's it's very daunting to know where to start. So a little help. And exercise is good. a dirty word, and but just just something simple as walking and being active.
1: Yeah. And saying, right, what's your step count being? You know, you are moving, and then you're going to carry on after the surgery. I just think. We need to use the technology out there just to improve the general health of everybody. Of course. And And really empower patients.
0: Yeah. And of course, with like wearables like Fitbits and things like that, we're already seeing that being able to be fed back to doctors. And so they can monitor how much patients are moving or you can monitor heart rates from home and things like that. So I'm assuming that's sort of along the same lines there.
1: Are completely. I mean, you've got Apple watches that are now, you know, if someone has a fall and they'll tell you if you're in atrial fibrillation, it is changing. Yeah. Patients can do ECGs on their phones and their watches. They are able to get access to this data. It's making sure they're using it properly and knowing to be sensible about it. But yeah. doctors need to realise that patients
0: are We're changing. Yeah, it's an entirely good, I think. Yeah, I think technology is making it an entirely different um, landscape in the NHS, really. Um, so I did want to ask you. Um, I'm very conscious of our time, but I did want to ask you: What are the biggest lessons that you learned from your experience as a patient that you will be taking back into the consulting room? So for me, it's you have no
1: idea what it's like to be a patient until you've walked in their shoes, and mm. every once in a while, listen to someone. I maybe at a conference, maybe read a blog post, maybe go on a forum, and just realise the gap between what you tell patients and what they really really need and it's very easy to um undersell patient symptoms oh you're just a bit tired it's just a bit of diarrhea but when you're you're the one having it it's much much worse than you think and it was just it was realizing that i wasn't really helping my patients I was giving them awful information, sending them out into the world on their own. And the first thing they did was go on Google. And I think I would now say these are safe places to go to get that extra information you need to feel empowered and help take control of what's happening to you. Um, For me, it was not becoming a breast cancer and having to step back and keep that line because I'm still the guy that has to break bad news. But I just think it's
0: remember what they need.
1: It might not be what you think they need.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's really good advice. Um, and do you mind me asking how you're doing now? No, it's fine. So my last local recurrence
1: was in 2018, and I retired in February. Um, but I'm currently fit and well, coming
0: up to eight years now since my first diagnosis. So I'm ready for more challenges. That's amazing, and congratulations! Um, I do you. see on Twitter that you're very active, running a lot. Um, so yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm. I
1: started. Um, kind of bodybuilding weightlifting in the first lockdown to practice what I preach because the resistance training is so important and I love getting the strength back after all my shoulder shoulder surgery
0: um yeah it's very empowering weight training actually that's my favorite thing to do it's just I, I quite enjoy getting stronger you know no, I do. And looking at the men in the gym when you're lifting twice as much as them, thinking, "Yeah, I've oh got this. yeah, that's a <laughs> that's a good feeling." I don't think you can top that feeling. Filling. No, <laughs> I'm so glad that's not just me.
1: No, they um, offer to help you lift the weights off the rack. It's like, no, I'm fine. No, I'm okay. Thanks. I've you got. You go back this. To posing. Yeah. yeah. You go but take your amazing. pictures in the mirror. <laughs> I wish I'd done it earlier. Exactly. Just to <laughs> feel strong and my body's ready for whatever's going to happen next
0: yeah it is one of the most empowering sports I've ever done actually and I'm I'm, I really love it um even if it is just to look stronger than all the boys in the gym (laughs) um nothing wrong with that we did go completely (laughs) off (laughs) not at all um we did go completely off topic there though so just to bring it back around and end the podcast I wanted to just ask you if you wouldn't mind wrapping up the key messages you'd like our listeners to take away
1: I think it's realizing that the empowered patient is here to stay and the doctor patient relationship is going to change because of that and we need to help every patient get access to digital health and digital literacy and we need to learn ourselves what our patients need so we can help them better.
0: Yeah, that's all. Brilliant advice. I'm sure that everyone will be taking it on board. Um but sadly that is all we've got time for on this episode. So Liz, thank you so much for joining me. It's been so interesting. I've really enjoyed it and I've learned a lot too. So I'm very grateful you were able to join us. And of course, to all of our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget Digital Health Unplugged is published fortnightly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and the usual podcast platforms. So please do give us a follow on any of those to keep up to date with what we're doing. And if you've got a podcast suggestion, we're really keen to hear from you. You can get in touch on podcast at digitalhealth.net. That's it for this episode. We'll catch you in two weeks time. You've been listening to Digital Health Unplugged. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more episodes or to keep up to date with what Digital Health Unplugged is doing, you can give us a follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast channel. If you want to know more about digital health, our news and events, you can head on over to digitalhealth.net.